Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. For over 20 years, from 1978 to 1999, Joan Jean Renault was the cellist for Kronos Quartet, participating in the development and premiere of hundreds of original works by Philip Glass, Terry Riley, John Cage, Hamza Eldin, John Zorn, Frank Zappa, and many others. She took part in the quartet's meteoric rise and its maturing into a central player in the new music scene helping to meld avant-garde classical, world music, rock, and jazz into a single mainstream genre. When Jean Renault left the quartet, after discovering that she had early stage multiple sclerosis, she began a new journey as a composer and solo performer. Her 2008 album, Strange Toys, was nominated for a Grammy Award, and she has collaborated with a variety of performers and writers including Fred Frith and P.C. Munoz. In 2016, Jean Renault contributed a piece entitled Knock to the Kronos Quartet's 50 for the Future series. Well, hey, Joan. It's uh, great to have you on the Story Talks Back, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, it's great to see you, even on Zoom. (laughs) Right? Even long distance. (laughs) Yes. So... um, just sort of going back to your your childhood and thinking about, you know, your roots, your beginnings. Um, are there any stories about your family or about you that you feel kind of shaped the way you perceive things or that had a real deep influence on you? Yeah, definitely. And it's really interesting because I hadn't thought about this till just now, really. <laughs> but when I uh, grew up, it was on a farm in Tennessee, outside Memphis, Tennessee, Cordova, in Cordova, Tennessee. And um, we had a, a cotton fields, so we had some cotton pickers. And, of course, in the South, and I was born in 1956, so, you know, in the 60s, we had cotton pickers picking our cotton not combines and then finally then they had combines and but anyhow there was a woman lily was her name um african-american woman who you know grew up there i don't know where she even was from originally you know um but she lived on our farm in a shack and but she was the coolest lady she (laughs) made her own soap from um, lard, from like bacon fat, you know, she made her own soap and she had pigs and and I don't know, we lived in the country, but we didn't live like she really lived on the country, you know, with the, with the produce from the country and everything. So, um, but she was, you know, and I didn't think about it till now, but, but Lily had a huge influence on me, on my life, because, you know, at that time, all that stuff in the South was okay. 
you know, and obviously not okay, but it was accepted and, and I grew up with it. And, but then I think because I, I loved Lily so much and then my next door neighbors had Joe and Vera who lived on their farm and they were really awesome people. And so, you know, you grow up and you, you realize these disparities and you don't really understand why that, that is. And you, you don't think of it as a big deal because you just see that person and realize, oh, they're amazing and they mean so much to me. And you don't think of it in any other context, like how much she had, she was making her soap and we were buying ours, you know, mm. but that didn't really enter into it. But, but then later as you get older and you start to realize those things, you realize how wrong that is. In my opinion, I think that's, you know, it's totally unacceptable. And, and then things did change in the South and I saw them change. And, and obviously now because of Black Lives Matter, it just makes you realize, well, there's still a lot that hasn't changed that needs to change. But I was really fortunate, I think, to uh, grow up in this kind of weird situation where you could actually really appreciate um, this this person, even though her differences at the time were now they, you know, if you look at Black Lives Matter, it, it's, you know, she was definitely in that category. I mean, you know, at mm. the very beginning. <laughs> so, I mean, how did that experience of the differences and the inequality, do you feel that had a long-term influence on you even subconsciously? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, I, th I think it makes you not, hopefully, not judge people as quickly. You know, my mom, I thought, was um, was very prejudiced in a lot of ways, mm. even though she wouldn't have said that she was, you know. Right. But, but I think, you know, so it's something that, I saw that way too, that I didn't appreciate that. I thought that she should have much more understanding and tolerance. Actually, even when I was in Kronos and, you know, get, uh, uh, Hank is gay man. And we had a really good friend, Deborah Serafini, who's a violinist who was, uh, we played in a quartet with her in college at IU actually Hank and me and Deborah and, but, and Deborah is a lesbian. And so uh, my mother, one time, you know, I just couldn't believe how she treated my friend, Deborah. And it was because she was lesbian. Mm. And I was just blown away by that. I just could not understand it, you know. And so, I don't know. And so even that, you know, you see a lot of that in your lifetime. And I feel fortunate because I think that's the better way to be, to try and not be judgmental or jump to conclusions about someone because of, yeah, all this stuff, their color, their, you know, their um, sexual preference, their, you know, whatever. Right. It's like, yeah, so. Right. I don't know there, if I answered your question. <laughs> no, no, that was interesting. Do you, do you remember any stories about you that uh, sort of took hold in your childhood, things that people uh, 
said about you or believed about you or how you were thought of in the family? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, I was the third of three girls and um, they, my mom was the one who was happy that I was playing music and everybody else was okay with it, but it wasn't a big deal in my family. A lot of families, you know, they grow up, they're musical families, their parents play, the kids play. You know, um, my father got a, a stereo, I remember, and, you know, he got um, some Wilson Pickett <laughs> uh, records, which is great, you know, and, uh -huh. and uh, Tijuana Brass, too. That was both great artists, actually, but, you know, very different from anything that I was doing, but my mom there was a there was a woman who was the uh music teacher at my high school which is was an all girls high school because or school i went there for 13 years but and the reason was is because my mom was a teacher she taught there so and she had three girls so we all got to go there for free so <laughs> it was great and it was a really good school you know and so they had I, a music teacher when i was in my you know I was 11 when I started playing the cello and she had wanted me to try and play the violin but I it was like oh it's way too high and squeaky so she said oh here try the cello and so it was great but so it, the, the being a musician in a way had nothing to do with my family except that they supported it my mom really supported it and um, so so I was very fortunate in that way um i, I don't know you, i was gonna say yeah go ahead were you seen as somehow rebellious or oh no 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 not rebellious no uh more more little cuckoo <laughs> <laughs> you know i was the spaced out musician i was the you know and i, I think a lot of it too was because i was the youngest in the family and and I got, I did get a lot of, you know, I got a lot of encouragement, especially from all my teachers mm -hmm. when I was playing music. And so that um, was a whole nother set of people in my life. And so my family, you know, they would come to a concert, my mom and maybe my dad, you know, but it was not a big deal. And and I never considered that a problem. You know, it's like, well, they should do what they want, you know, and, but so that, but, but that becomes your kind of position in the family it was, I would, and it's true. I'm kind of very agreeable person. I go along with a lot of things, you know, and don't make waves. <laughs> and so, you know, so I was just a kid going along playing music and everybody was fine with it. But if anything, I was probably, you know, more the more abnormal for that and then especially then when i went to music school and that was my major in college and then uh then i joined chronos you know well then i went to geneva switzerland and studied mm. and then i um joined chronos you know so and all that was very fortunate that i could got to do all of that which obviously i, my, I have my parents to thank for supporting all that you know but but yeah, it was not like, um, I think in the end too, I found out after my mom died, um, which she was 94, um, she had a great life. 
But I found out really from my sister that my mom used to do this thing where she would run into people and she'd be with my two sisters, Susan and Mary. And all she would do was talk about, oh, Joan did this, Joan did that. You know, she was in the paper, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> and of course, my sisters, if anything, that just would turn them off, you know, be like, well, you know, we've done stuff too. Why don't you talk about us, you know? And so that revealed a lot. And I realized, well, that was really bad on my mom's part, I think, you know. I mean, I'm glad, she, but and she was never that way with me. It was like, she was the kind of mom where nothing was ever good enough. So <laughs> she was completely opposite with them. And so finally, my sister and I had this conversation and it was like, oh, wow. You know, we both had a different understanding of each other after that. It was made a lot of things kind of clear, you know, that so that was um, not a good trait from the whole, you know, musician. <laughs> normal person thing was there anybody in your family who was into storytelling or who liked to tell stories or people around you i had a grandfather who he didn't really tell stories but he would tell like limericks <laughs> those kind of things uh -huh. but but uh no no storytellers so how did you you said you started to play the cello at 11, but how did you sort of find your way to music? Like, how did that kind of evolve? Well, see, this, again, it's really my, my mom, you know, she thought, I think she thought, oh, maybe she had wanted to be a musician, I think, at one point, and then realized, well, no, that wasn't something she could do necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so she had even encouraged me earlier on I was taking piano lessons and but it was when I was at this school that I went to this um, mm. and so at that time I was pretty young I was probably seven or eight something like that and um, my lessons were doing were during my recess hour so I would always forget you know and then finally when and I remember because our um we had our school and then right outside was the kind of playground and then right beyond that was this little house where i went to take my lessons it was like a little cottage thing you know so <laughs> the last time i forgot to take my you know that i had my lesson I, I finally remembered and i was walking over there and i see her leaving and i realized oh she's given up on me you know so that was the end of my piano career. But I was never a good pianist because uh, it was interesting. I, I could never read the bass clef. I would always read the trello clef and I would sort of do things by ear, but I wasn't really reading the bass clef. And then of course, you know, I play the cello, which is mostly in the bass clef, but uh, completely different beast. <laughs> so, so what do you think drew you to the cello? I think it was definitely the sound of the cello. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think right away, that's why I had refused to play the violin because I, I really don't particularly like that, um, <laughs> that uh, sound, you know, that uh, range of sound. Interesting. But then, you know, the, the, vi I mean, the cello actually plays up in the violin range. I mean, the cello then of course, you know, having, 
started playing the cello and enjoying it and had great teachers, you know, then I, and then being in Kronos, which was a whole nother great teacher, you know, for those 20 years. I mean, it's like, I really learned a lot about that instrument all inside and out kind of, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, you can make so many different kinds of sounds and you can make it sound like so many different kinds of instruments. Uh, I have a, a girl now that I'm teaching, she's 13. And it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I've even, because, and it's also because a lot of the COVID-19, so now we're doing lessons, you know, like online. Right. And so, um, but she's, I've had her start to compose a little bit, you know, and, um, and so it's, it's very interesting the and and really explore she has sort of had a breakthrough and it was like yep that you know she realized this uh you know how there's so many octaves on the cello you know that you can play and we were even talking about that she even said oh this is really violin range isn't it i said yes it is i said you're really high up there and, and that it was hard because you know you're in thumb position way up there but she was doing it and she got it, you know, so it was very cool. And um, so that's been really nice to see also, you know, when you, you have knowledge that you can give to someone and then you see it sort of click and make right. sense, you know. Do you, I mean, do you have the sense that the, the cello is like a certain kind of character? Would you say that the cello has a certain personality? Yeah, I would actually. Though I used to name my cellos. Uh, I had Clarissa, but then I had and Bubba cello was was finally mine. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think they, like certainly they have so much character and history and so many lifetimes that people have experienced with it, you know. And somehow, you know that that all is is kind of in there. I think. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> does does the does your cello now i mean if you were to describe it as a person do you have any sense of what its qualities would be like oh my goodness there'd be so many it'd be like uh i don't know it might have to be a three-headed thing or something <laughs> <laughs> minotaur are they minotaurs what are minotaurs but um you know something uh very complex <laughs> uh -huh. with a lot of stuff going on <laughs> i was thinking about you know you as a as a girl you know choosing to play the cello um, at a young age in the 60s you know i mean the cello in a way is not as ladylike to me as the violin you know which you can sort of play politely but to me to play the cello, you've got to be kind of more of a boss, you know, you've got it right here. Yeah. Does that, does well, that, did anybody ever comment on that to you or did you, did you ever have that thought? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, a lot of things. First of all, you have to spread your legs to play the cello. So when you're a woman, you know, that, that is a certain connotation there. Um, and I had people, you know, guys talk to me about that you know and be like oh god just dude give it up it's okay you know but then uh i i think a lot of things like the cello is very rhythmical 
I think like for instance, in the quartet, it sort of provided the role of the bass and the drums, right. you know, so it, it's like that and holds things together and, you know, and so, and even the shape of the instrument, all of that sort of implies that sort of heaviness, groundedness, kind of, I guess you'd say. Um, it's, and, and there are so many personalities and aspects to it too. I mean, you know, the fact that you can play really early music and, and just have it be the, the perfect sound for that, you know, but then you can play, you know, stuff now that's, um, I don't know, Zanakas or a lot of, so many, so many different things, um, you know, any kind of jazz or pop or, I mean, just think how many cellos now are in uh, rock bands, right. you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And, and then there's, there's the rock bands with the cellos, like Apocalyptica, who's great, you right. know, and we saw them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, wow. <laughs> that was awesome. I've never seen them live, but they must have been awesome. Yeah. That was, awesome. That was right before the uh, pandemic, actually. That was my life. Oh, was it really? Wow. Where'd you see them? In uh, Jersey, Red Bank. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Did any of them do their hair? You know? <laughs> oh, my God. It was such a show. It was like a Broadway show, really. Wow. But it was so... It was so well done. It was never monotonous or it was actually better than Metallica. <laughs> well, there you go. And they, they play a lot of Metallica, don't they? Or do they play all of Metal all it's Metallica? All Metallica. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to be talking to you about Metallica. Uh, <laughs> but they're great. No, I love that. You know who turned me on to uh, Apocalyptica was uh, uh, Larry Oaks with huh. the Rova Saxophone Quartet. Oh, nice. And so, because we were improvising a bunch, probably like in the 2000s, you know. And he said, oh, you should check these guys out, you know. It was like, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, you you developed yourself as an individual musician. You know, you did a lot to, you went to Switzerland. Um, and then you joined Kronos. And you really... Um, you know, you threw yourself into a, a situation where you were one in four voices, but you still obviously have, you know, very much your own character, your own playing style. Everybody in the group has their own playing style. So, right. I mean, what was it like to sort of try and express yourself, you know, tell your story in a sense as just one voice in a quartet? Oh, well, you know, I, I never maybe thought of it quite that way um, because, I, because I always felt like I was able to express myself and I really felt that Kronos helped me express myself. Mm. You know, I think all the stuff that I did with Kronos was like super awesome, you know, and super, um, you know, you know, we would talk, of course, about all this stuff and we would talk about phrasing and and where the whole, you know, where the piece was going or that, you know, how how you wanted to play a certain thing. I mean, of course, you, you talk a lot about bowing and articulation and dynamics and, you know, pitch and, you know, I mean, it's it's endless, but the whole thing was really 
in the effort of trying to produce this statement of a piece of music and present it as 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 best it, we felt it could be presented you know that the best that we uh thought it could could happen from us <laughs> you know um and so uh that's influenced me so much i mean all the all those all the things that i've done have influenced me so much i mean the first guy, Peter Spurbeck, because the woman that started me on the violin, you know, she didn't play the cello. I mean, started me on the cello. She didn't play the cello, play the violin. So she said, oh, go to Memphis State, study with this guy who was great. Hmm. And then he took, uh, told me to go to his teacher, Fritz Mogg at Indiana University. And then I went to study with um, Pierre Fournier and then Kronos. And so if you look at all those things, it's like, wow, it was such a great education in every instance. And what I learned from every person or group of people in Kronos's case, you know, I mean, Hank and I played together. We both, uh, our teachers at IU played in a quartet together. So I've always felt really close with Hank, not only as a person, but as a player the two of us play in a very similar manner. Mm. And part of it is because our teachers were very close and had influenced each other. So that's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. all Yeah. There's so many influences at this point because I've been around so long, you know, so. <laughs> um, just to get back to the quartet, I mean, what, what is it like to, everything that you do in the quartet really is a group effort you know it's mm -hmm. like I remember once I happened to see you play um, an Elliot Carter piece Ooh. by yourself it was oh the solo yeah there was a soloist who couldn't make it to the show and I think you wound up subbing for him or something oh, and I was wow. so struck by seeing you on your own you know Oh, wow. Unexpectedly. And, you know, it, I saw you in a way that I never saw you as part of the quartet. Right, right. Did you did you ever feel like that was something you wanted to do more of when you were in the quartet? Not really. No, I was very content as a string quartet player. Um, you know, I mean, I, as an ensemble player. And I think I always had been because even when I grew up, you know, I had two friends, a violist and a violinist, and we played trios. And I mean, I always really liked playing chamber music more than anything, really. really? Um, yeah. You know, or, or music with small numbers of people, I think, you know. And so in, in a sense, it, I mean, because like even when I went to IU, you know, you're not you're required, I think, in your four years of getting a bachelor of music degree that you have to do four semesters of string quartet. Well, I took string quartet every semester I was there wow. and I was there for two, uh, four years, you know, uh -huh. just because I wanted to, you know, and it was great and I loved it. And, and, and I played a lot of new music when I was also in all these places, like even in, uh, Memphis, Memphis State, because there were these composers and composers are always looking for people to play their music. 
So I played some music of some guys who were composers in the, um, you know, university department. Uh, and um, yeah, and then when I was at IU, uh, same thing, you know, so um, I was part of a, I, actually, I think it was the first uh, new music ensemble at IU, which seems hard to believe because that was probably 75, maybe 76, something like that. And I remember we played um, Russell Davies' um, Eight Songs for a Mad King, which I just was thought was just the coolest thing, you know, because we had sets and things, you know. Uh, okay. So it was great. So I, so I realized, well, I've been exposed to I was exposed to a lot of contemporary music because I was kind of open to it same thing with me playing with a bunch of string quartets or groups is because that's what I really wanted to do you know so uh, and I played like in early music groups um, at IU played some continual parts and and which I also thought was awesome and um, you know and I I took uh, jazz improv from Dave Baker who was there you know so so i was always interested it was interesting this you know this before chronos and so i was interested in all that stuff but not i don't know so chronos just ended up being a perfect thing for me mm. you know and and expanded like all that stuff you know there's there's no way any other i think group that i could have been in would have had that possibility for me you right. know because yeah they're pretty amazing what they've done really i was curious about you know as someone who's worked on so many pieces that you were playing for the first time you know and you were there as the piece was being developed you know you got to know the composer you know and you got to know you you sort of knew the inside story of how the piece developed you know whereas you know, so many classical musicians are playing mostly pieces that were where they probably never met the composer or had a chance to talk about it. Or, so did you ever find that, right. that sort of knowing those stories was a detriment or did it make it harder for you in a sense to play the piece or was it always a, a plus? Oh, do I have the composer there and work with the composer? Well, I want to know, you know, the, the evolution and kind of the backstory Oh, that was absolutely the best. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just think of it. I mean, you just know more about the piece. I even really liked it when people, we used to get scores from people, and of course they'd be handwritten. Mm. And they'd be hard to read, you know, sometimes. And now, you know, everything is digital, and it's super easy to read. And I use it all the time myself. It's great. But I even realized when that happened, it was like, Oh, you know, you kind of lose something. You kind of lose mm -hmm. this some of this character of the of the composer who's writing it down, and because the way they write it down is kind of revealing, actually. Mm. You know, it can be really lightly done, or it could be, you know, really chaotic, or you know, or in the case of Morton Feldman, you know, it was like really super methodical which makes sense. You know, I got all those repeats, you know, and everything, but it was, it was great. And it, I, I felt that kind of helped know more about the piece. So definitely 
you know, when you meet the composer, if you know any story about how it came to be, um, any, anything about it at all, I think is all really valuable information that you shouldn't be able to really detach from the piece, you know, it is part of the whole thing. Definitely. Did you, can you think of a piece that had a really interesting story? Or, uh... Well, like Terry's music, you know, especially Terry Riley. Right. Um, and I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of these stories. I mean, when we first started working with Terry, because, you know, Terry, um, and you got to hand it to David. It was David who asked Terry, kept bugging him to write something down. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, Terry was teaching at Mills College too, which is where Kronos was, but he hadn't written anything down because he was studying with Pandit Pranath, who was an Indian, uh, North African Indian musician, who uh, singer and amazing guy. So, so Terry was kind of into a different um, tradition there for a bit. And of course, it only paid off because then when you started writing down music you know of course all those years he spent doing that influenced his writing you know mm -hmm. and so you know and that's a good example of how you can't separate anything out of you know a composer a composer piece of music is part of their life which is you know very complex everything you know it's all part of it somehow and so with terry you could really see that happening in a way and now i mean you know look how much stuff Terry has written now. It's un unbelievable, you know, right. so, but at the beginning and, you know, the, one of the first times we went to, we went to his ranch and we all stayed there. And then, um, uh, Terry wrote down these little 14 beat modules. And so then we all like took these modules and then we, uh, sort of place them you know in an order and certain things against each other you know so we sort of were in on how he was making the piece you know right, right. and yeah and i'm sure that influenced how he wrote it or then even wrote certain things the way we always played them once we you know chronos come up with an order and that's what it is i mean there's once you decide, okay, this is it, you know, it sort of was it. So, um, but then, and then also that's when we did uh, G song um, with him. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one was called Sunrise of the Planetary Dream Collector. Right, right. Um, was the module thing. But then, I mean, um, G song was really kind of modules also, but, um, and we did a kind of a similar thing actually with that too. So it was really great though. It was this weekend where we spelt, spent um, with him taking these, you know, little snippets and putting them together and figuring out how to make a piece out of it. So that was a good one. So, good piece. Um, so you had an amazing time with Kronos amazing yeah. career there and I know that you at some point during your being with Cronus you found out that um, was something wrong with you physically or something was going wrong when when did you find that out and how did how did that evolve 
All right. Well, I can tell you right when it was, 19. Um, well, it's so 19. Uh, I have, well, no, I do have to think about this a second. It's when I turned 40. <laughs> so, yeah. um, 1996, um, I got like a flu sort of thing. And, and of course I kept playing. We had somebody, David Krakauer was coming from out of town and we were doing a, um, concert at, uh, UC Berkeley at Hertz Hall and, he so he was coming out and going to play that concert then we were going to record the piece at skywalker Uh, which we did and we did all that but i was sick and i remember before we went on stage uh in berkeley i was huddled up in a blanket you know backstage but then you go on stage and this would happen all the time and then you're under the lights you know and actually makes you feel better you know so it's Mm -hmm. like so I didn't think too much about it, but then right after that, I started having these problems with numbness on, especially on my right leg, but mm. in both my legs sort of. And then it was, I went to someone who at first thought it was Galambare, which is a related syndrome to MS, mm. which is eventually what it was determined. It was multiple sclerosis. It was MS. So, um, so of course, you know, that makes you think, well, <laughs> okay, what am I going to do now? You know, <laughs> what, how am I going to deal with this? And, and, um, I mean, I've been fortunate. I, cause now I've had it for like 25 years or something. And, um, you know, certain things suck big time, of course, you know, but then again, you, you learn a lot of stuff and you learn how to deal with things. And, and I have to say, since I left Kronos, um, and I really did start doing more solo stuff and composing, which was really great. But really, there were two people who really influenced me, and they were both people who were handicapped. Hmm. And one is Judy uh, Smith, who at the time, and for she only retired maybe two years ago, but was the uh, director and, and also a dancer for the Axis Dance Company, which is in Oakland. And it's one of the, the, if not the first dance company that worked with disabled and able-bodied dancers. Okay. She, she had lost the use of her uh, legs. She'd had an accident when she was 17. And um, so she had been in a wheelchair for a really long time. And then uh, there was another guy that I met who had an accident, uh, um, B.J. Miller, who, uh, Bruce Miller, um, who also had a horrific accident when he was 19. I think I met him when he was 30. Um, and it was, he lost both of his legs below his knees and one of his arms below this elbow. And, um, but the thing about these people is they were just, they blew me away. They were just amazing, you know, and it was like, wow how you know because it's a lot to deal with you know and and but but then you also realize well everybody has a lot to deal with and mm-hmm. you know so you but I learned a lot from them in that way you know and I think that because of that you know it's my life is so much better than it would have been if I hadn't have mm-hmm. known them and 
been influenced by them and mm. just get their knowledge of, you know, their lives and, you know, and they're very accomplished people. <laughs> That's the thing too. So uh-huh. it's inspiring in that way. I mean, did you have any thought at the time that you might want to leave Kronos or that you might be ready to leave? Yeah, I had, I think, and, and that's a tricky question as far as like, you know, because there was a little bit of dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction going on there, you know, a certain amount. I, I sort of felt like, well, I used to feel like it was so democratic. We each of the members of the group had their sort of expertise or their area that they were you know, Hank, we used to call Hank, Hank the bank, you know, because he did financial stuff or John did a lot of recording. Dave, of course, did all the talking with composers, you know, and I did a lot of grant writing and, you know, stuff like this. So, um, and, but, and so it was all, and we'd all make our decisions together and everything. And, but of course, you know, things change. And as it developed and it, it was getting to the point where David was making a lot more of the decisions before we necessarily even heard about things, you know? Hmm. So that was tricky and I felt less satisfactory. Hmm. It was less rewarding to be involved in. Hmm. I really liked it that, you know, I was really participating in a lot of the, um, the business of Kronos, the, uh, you know, and how, what we did and, you know, where we're going and all that, but let's, we have to be clear. David had a very clear vision from the very beginning about the quartet, you know, and I think then that had a lot to do with it too. It was probably, you know, no, he wanted to do certain things a certain way and that's what was going to be done. And so that was, I was having a little hard time with that. Mm. I have to be honest. <laughs> and even though, I mean, I can appreciate the whole thing and, and see how it evolved and, and, and I'm actually happy that I'm not in the group. You know, mm. it's interesting when you see it evolve in a certain way and it's, I think it's great what they do, but I'm not sure I'd really want to be doing that exactly, mm. you know, um, which is okay too. You know, it's, there's a lot of different, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that I actually ended up doing some solo stuff and I really using a looper and starting to compose and, so I learned a lot more about a lot of stuff. Right. Um, and, and I'm happy I did that. Um, but it is no question in my mind that it was the MS that mm. triggered that all. You mm. know, um, I don't know that I wouldn't have been able to leave the group if it hadn't been for me getting the MS. And once I got MS, it was like, you know, this is not going to be good. <laughs> you know, so I think you know, we should, you know, you guys do what you want to do. And I, I should get out of here, you know? Mm. And I think it was the best decision clearly for everybody. Okay. So now, you know, you've, you've started composing. Um, and I assume you have, there's other people who are playing your pieces, right? Yeah. Some people have played my pieces. <laughs> how, how does that feel to be the person who's writing something, but then, you know, relying on other people to interpret your story or having your story kind of filtered through them. Well, 
that's that's interesting actually because you realize or i realize as a composer performer really you know a lot of the reasons sometimes people would really like my music was probably because of my performance you know whereas maybe it wasn't the best piece in the world but you know probably the way i delivered it was more interesting in this case now hopefully that has changed a little bit but i think that's that's part of it. I mean, you know, I, I it's multi, a lot of the stuff I first started doing was multiple cello and which, you know, when you say what, you know, I started out, I even played, you know, when I first started playing the cello and it was with this group of young kids who were violinists. And of course I was playing the cello. So I was like the only bass player or whatever, but still I was playing with other people. And then when I, my cello teacher at Indiana, I mean, sorry, at, um, in Memphis, who I studied with for five years, he was so greatly influential and he had all his students play together. So we did like eight cello things, you know, quartets, quintet, we, you know, just cellos, all cellos, you know? And so I've always had that sound in my ear mm. and I've really liked that and the fact that the cello can like you know play all these different parts and so when i started writing music you know and i was a lot of times i thought oh god i'm just recreating chronos you know because i would do four parts and they were basically you know because i can play bass and i can play the top line too you know and everything in between uh -huh. so so it was uh you know that was um a great thing though and i really enjoyed doing it and um yeah so <laughs> did you um um what did i want to ask you did you ever do you ever feel like your pieces that you write are stories do you do you feel like there's a story in the playing or in the delivery absolutely my compositions have a lot to do with stories, mm. you know, and it was really interesting because and Kronos just released. Uh, there was a little video that was to the first three minutes, I think, of the piece that I wrote for them for their 50 for the future. Right. And it was a dancer. And um, I don't know if you saw it. It's very cool. I should send it to you if you haven't seen it. Um, and and so it was a filmmaker and it was this dancer and they, you know, did something to the first three minutes of this piece that I wrote for Kronos, but it's great, you know? And it's like, it really, I, a lot of times I feel like, oh, my stuff works so much better with visuals, mm. you know, my music, <laughs> it's really better with visuals than anything else. And I've done a lot of stuff with um, either film or there was a guy who did a project for the Met Metropolitan in New York, um, and they were putting together all these different pieces from different sculpture exhibits from, you know, really medieval to really current. Mm -hmm. And um, so they were having different people do different things for certain sculptures. And so I did music for like six of them. And mm -hmm. it was basically like, you know, there was a, a, a really beautiful sculpture of a, a woman she was an alabaster black you know alabaster and um 
she was naked, but she had a shawl around her. Um, and so, I mean, you know, obviously she looks really cold, you know? So I made certain, I made a piece like, you know, that it, they're only like were a minute to two minutes long. You know, there was another one that was a, um, a, a wooden statue of, it was more um, medieval actually. Uh, and it was a prophet. And so then, you know, then it's, you can start to think about all the, you know, music in fourths and fifths and, you know, so, I mean, basically a lot of times visual stuff gives you a story, I guess is what it is, you know? So it's like, it's easier for me to write a piece of music if I have a story, if I have something that I'm thinking about, or even if it's a concept, you know, um, like uh, there was a piece that I wrote early on with a looper and it was because I was in my house waiting for someone. And now the piece is called waiting actually. But, and so I was writing this piece and it was all to do with the fact that I was waiting, you know, and, and it really sounds like that, you know, um, then, there'll be a piece like uh, ink blot that I did for Bruce Connor, who was a great artist and, and his, he had some um, artwork that they were actual ink blots. I mean, they were amazing because they were very, you know, complex or a bunch of them. Um, and, you know, obviously he had to be super, super meticulous to do this, you know? So anyhow, so he asked me to write a piece it was for the podcast for the museum and so i started thinking okay well what's an ink blot you know it's a dot of ink that gets folded in half you know keeps getting folded essentially you know so then that gave me the concept to write that piece you know and um so it basically kind of opens like that and then closes you know um but yeah, so definitely I'm all, I'm all up for the story and music and the, you know, the feeling or the meaning or the um, concept. Those are all important to me. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like the fact that, you know, you have MS um, and that creates a story in itself? you know, that ha ha comes with a certain story, a certain interest for certain people, um, but also creates certain reactions. I mean, does, do you ever feel like maybe the story of the MS is sort of interfering with your story or that it's, you know? No, I don't feel that. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's just integrated. It is my story. It is part of my story now. There's no way of getting around it. You know, that's what it is. Uh, and uh, and especially, you know, because MS is the way it is, you know, that it is a slow sort of decline, if you mm -hmm. will. Not everyone. I mean, it's so different for every person. But for me, I could definitely say it's been a slow decline. I mean, you know, I was doing pretty good. I mean... I've always done really well. And then after about 20 years, I, I had, I was gotten to the point where I was using two walking sticks, which was good, but I was falling a lot and stuff, you know, so, was, you know, get to the point you think, well, okay, maybe it's time I use a chair. So, 
you know, so then I, now I'm in a chair, which I really like, uh -huh. but it has its, it has its problems too, you know, then because you, you're not on your legs and then that creates problems and, mm -hmm. you know, so the whole thing, it's a journey, you know, and, and I think I, I realized that from all these friends of mine too, who have had their journeys that have been way more disruptive, I would say, than mm. my journey, than, than MS for my journey, you know. Um, and also, you know, just think they had this at a young age, that just boggles my mind. I think, well, at least I had 40 years of pretty mm. normal, you know, whatever. But um, right. so anyhow, uh, it's, it, I think it just is integrated certainly at this point into, and I'm, you know, I'm getting old now. I'm 64. So it's like, you know, things change. I'm happy to be here, you know, with the birds and the roses and the blue sky. <laughs> so, you know. But you, you still are, are able to play. I mean, you, you still have all that. Yeah. Even though I'm, I'm playing a lot less now. And part of that, um, well, right here where I, I don't even have my cello actually up here. Mm. I have a little electric slide guitar, <laughs> which is really fun. Oh, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, now even because I have to say, because of this whole sitting thing, it's, in, it's harder for me to sit normally. You know, I, I'm a little imbalanced actually. So it actually is, has made my playing the cello a little harder. And this is really basically the last time I was really playing was March 15th of this year because there was a thing I had done for somebody was doing a a um, been um, a uh, celebration really of Hamza El Dean's life, and I worked with Hamza a lot, especially the last 10 years of his life, which would have been you know in the 2000s for me it's, it's about 2010 or whatever and i arranged his piece that chronos played all the time um Escalade, but i arranged it for looper and cello so i could play it myself and it was uh great i played it a lot and, I, and then i played with hamza a lot the two of us would play so we were gonna they wanted to do this um celebration but i said well you know i don't think i can do the looper thing anymore you know it's that would be too much for me because you know you have to do, use your feet you know oh, and when I first yeah my right leg has always been worse hmm. and so when I first started using the looper I even realized oh my right leg's not that great so I had to learn to use my left which I did and that was fine but now I wouldn't even be able to use my left you know right so I thought okay but I'd really like to participate in this celebration so why don't i make an arrangement for four cellos and we can play it live hmm. so basically that's what we were going to do and i had three of my buddies cello buddies um and it was great we i did it and then we rehearsed it and it sounded great and then of course the concert was supposed to be on march 22nd i think uh -huh. or 20th or something so then so the 15th, I think, was we rehearsed. That was the last rehearsal. And then the whole thing was canceled, of course, you know. 
and we thought it might be but but it was great so we had gotten together and worked on it and know that it worked and so and so i was playing then you know but that's that's a lot easier it wasn't anything very difficult <laughs> mm. so did you this is i'm not sure you can be able to answer this but do you feel like that the voice that you play with is the same voice that you use in composing? Hmm. Well, I'm sure it is. You know, I've always thought of myself as a performer is probably much more advanced than my life as a composer. Mm. I mean, I, I've written, I, I've written some things that I really like, you know. Um, I mean, a lot of things. I, I, but I think I knew myself as a performer <laughs> for for so long that, and I think people, you know, have responded to my performing for so long that, you know, that's maybe what I feel is my stronger aspect, even though not anymore, because I'm not really playing anymore, you know, so there you go, um, changes. So I don't know, but, but it's hard for me to be as confident about my composing, I think, uh, as I am confident about my performing, just because I think I performed for so long you know, and then, but now I've composed, see, now I've composed maybe 25 years, but. It's a long time. Yeah, but I've been playing for, you know, how many, like 50 or something, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. What, um, what do you think you'd like to have your story be from here? Do you have a picture of how, how you'd like things to, to play out? Well, you know, I, I've never been very concerned about leaving any kind of legacy or anything. Um, it's never been my interest. Um, I'm really happy, like with this young student, when I see her kind of just developing and, and discovering things, you know, I, I really realized early on, oh, okay, well, she's she's not going to be a cellist like I was a cellist. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell that's not her, you know, primary focus in the same way. Um, I mean, she's learning all sorts of cool stuff, so she could end up doing something really amazing and, and actually even being a composer or something that, but I can't see her you know, because there are certain pieces that I played when I was a kid, you know, they sort of take you through all these steps of pieces and then, you know, things get more and more difficult and, you know, and she's at a certain point, she was kind of like not as interested in that sort of thing. Right. So, so then I realized, well, that's okay. And then that's why we started kind of learning about other stuff, you mm. know, which, so it'll be interesting to see what ha happens, you know, with her but um yeah so but that to me is probably the most important thing i feel like well if i can help someone um 
through their journey or, or whatever, you know, uh, that would be good. That's a good thing. But other than that, it's not like, you know, I'm really not in, into, so I'm not really into playing that much or performing at all now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm more like happy to, uh, uh, make, pick blackberries and make, um, blackberry cobbler, you know, or uh, just made some blackberry bread pudding, you know. <laughs> so I'm more, I've become a homemaker. <laughs> Perhaps. Well, thank you so much, Joan. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, it's great talking to you. Yeah. Great to see you. <laughs> Have a great rest of the day and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, me too. Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.